our Lord and our God, I just want to thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that you are giving to us in order to come apart here, in order to delve into the deep things of your word. Why? Because we want to be like Jesus. We want to worship as he would have us too. And so, Father, as we look at this biblical study on the use of chariots and horses, help us to understand that the ends never justify the means. Give us clarity of thought. And, Lord, we pray that you will work in a way to not only illuminate our minds, but give us the strength and the courage to make decisions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, it's, uh, it's really been a privilege to be here with you. How many of you are here for the first uh, session? Okay, so there's, there's quite a few of you. All right. We're going to get more specific as we move on. This is session four, and then especially sessions five and six tomorrow, we'll really get more specific. But we've been trying to lay down a certain foundation. We've been trying to integrate theology and doxology, theology and worship forms. And so uh, this is a little biblical study on the whole issue of does the end really justify the means? And does it, does it really work? As I mentioned, for those of you that were here, oh, last night, I said, you know, as Seventh-day Adventists, we're clear about the day, but we're, coming, we're becoming confused about the way. Well, I'll talk a little bit about that in this session, because confusion about the way leads to confusion about the day. And so my appeal this afternoon is to consider what I say, like Paul said to Timothy, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Let's turn to First Chronicles chapter 19. Verses 6 and 7. First Chronicles, chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. King David has always been a magnanimous kind of individual, uh, large-hearted. And so when he found out in verse 1 that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, died, he thought to himself, oh, I'm going to send some ambassadors there in order to comfort the king and give him a message of goodwill. Well, when the messengers got there and the ambassadors got there, their motives were completely impugned. They couldn't, these, these idol-worshipping Ammonites could not conceive of the fact that King David would send his ambassadors to this country simply to express some goodwill. They said, no, 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 they've been sent here to spy out the land and discover the weakness of the land. And so they greatly mistreated those ambassadors. In verse 4 it says, Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the midst hard by their buttocks and sent them away. And they were the laughing stock of the Ammonite people walking all the way back to Israel. Now, when you treat an ambassador like that, that's like slapping the king and the president in the face. And so this was definitely an act of war. And so you find in verse 6, when the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan and the children of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire them chariots and horsemen. So what did they send them to hire? Just want to make sure in the afternoon that you guys are awake. <laughs> he sent them to hire what? Okay, good. And it mentions all the places from which they were sent. In verse 7 it says, So they hired 32,000 chariots of Makkah and, his, uh, and the king and his people uh, uh, who came and pitched before Medabah. And the children of Ammon gathered themselves together from their cities and came to battle. 
And so they're about to lock horns. They're about to close into mortal combat. And Joab gives a resounding speech. He gets all the, the fellows together. And he says in verse 13, he says, Be of good courage and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God. And let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. So they locked horns. And the children of Israel, with God on their side, really put them to shame. Well, these people came back a year later, and this time David himself took charge of the battle. In verse 17, it says, It was told David, and he gathered all Israel and passed over Jordan, and came upon them, and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. But the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in what? Chariots and 40,000 footmen, and killed Shopak, the captain of the host. Verse 19, And when the servants of Hadarezer saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. Neither would the Syrians help the children of Ammon anymore. I want you to go to one text just for a minute. I should introduce this, this subject with this text. Put your, keep your finger here. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. That's kind of where the title comes from. Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7. And I can just imagine David, you know how, you know when you go out and pass out tracts and all that, and you know you do your missionary work for the Lord, probably the best part is when you come back, and then everybody gives a report of what's happened. Well, I can see David having that kind of report with his generals, you know, the leaders of the thousands, the, the 500s, the 50s, and the tens. And uh, he probably said something like this in Psalm 20, verse 7. He said, you know, fellas, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Amen. It wasn't the chariots and the horses that won the battle for them. It was the name of the Lord our God. You see, David was a good Bible student as well as a good student of history. And he read in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 16, he read that the king should not multiply horses to himself. And so he decided, hey, that's what the Bible says, that's what we're going to do. And he also remembered what happened at the Red Sea. I mean, God's people were slaves. They were not trained in warfare. God was leading them out of Egypt, and He brought them to the Red Sea, mountains on either side, the Egyptians behind. But Moses said, go forward. And it says in Exodus 15, verse 1, it says, I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has He thrown into the sea. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and horses and his hosts has he cast into the sea. So David remembered all of this stuff. And that's why he could say, in my mind's eye, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 31. We're going to take a look at this theme in a few different places. This idea of chariots and horses and how this whole thing plays out before we make applications. Isaiah chapter 31. Verses 1 to 4. Let's just begin with verse 1. Now, I like this. If you find that somebody is going to be uh, marching off in a wrong direction, this is a good word, at least in the King James. It says, woe. You know, put the brakes on. It says, woe to them that go down to what country? Egypt. Egypt for help. 
and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horses because they are very strong. So the Bible is saying, yeah, you know what? These things do work. These things are strong. These things can get the job done. But notice how the rest of the verse plays out. It says, but, you always got to watch out for that word. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. It's clear to me as I read the text that you cannot do both at once. He's saying, look, if you're going down to Egypt, first of all, if you're an Israelite, why would you do that? Have you not read Exodus 15? Have you not read what God did to Pharaoh and his chariots and his horses? He doesn't need that. So why are you going down there to purchase those things in order to create this kind of warfare? So you either got that option or you're looking unto the Holy One of Israel. That's the only option that there is. In verse 4 it says, For thus has the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Friends, we either got ourselves and our own abilities with chariots and horses, or we have our trust in God. And you know something? God knows how to wield the sword a whole lot better than we do. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 11. Another scenario. Now the children of Israel have just entered into an allegiance with the men of Gibeah. Uh, they were deceived, but they should have checked with God. They didn't, and they were deceived into this alliance with them. And these men of Gibeah were not, as people would today say, they were not wimps. These were mighty valiant men that surrendered to the Israelites. But... The rest of the nations looked on and said, hey, if these men of Gibeah do that, I mean, we're all going to die. So they got together into a huge confederacy in order to wipe out Gibeah because they were so upset. In verse 4, it talks about all the Canaanites you can, and, the, and the Perizzites. They're, they're mentioned in verse, in verse 3. But in verse 4, it says, they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and what? Now in the King James it just says very many. You know when there's so much, you know, you, you quit counting. You just say a lot. That's it. So that gives you some idea of, uh, of, of the opposition that they were facing. Well, God told them to do something in verse 6. It says, um, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. And you will lame their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And in verse 9, Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He lamed their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Very interesting commentary in the book Patriarchs and Prophets on page 510. This is what it says. Um, it says, commenting on this, the chariots and the horses that had been the pride and boast of the Canaanites were not to be appropriated by Israel. At the command of God, the chariots were burned and the horses lamed and thus rendered unfit for use in battle. The Israelites were not to put their trust in chariots or horses, but in the name of the Lord, their God. Amen. Psalm chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. 
We're going to take a look at this text in just a little bit, but 2 Kings 23, verse 11, there's a, a, an incredible revival that took place, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. But what did the chariots and horses represent, and what do they represent today? Well, they were instruments of warfare, primarily used not by God's people, but by God's enemies in order to conquer territory. And they were very effective in battle and struck fear into many as, uh, as, as they came. Like take the Assyrian army, for example. They were an incredible war machine. Their charioteers were one of the most dreaded units of the Assyrian army. And uh, their thunder from afar struck terror into many a nation. God said this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, 20, verse 1. He said, when you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots, and a people more than you, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, we're going to be doing some outreach Sabbath morning. And some of us are going to be, myself included, man, this is a big city, you know, how are we going to do this? But God said, you know, when you see all that, he says, don't be afraid. He says, I'm going to be right there with you. You know, today the church no longer fights a physical war. We're not conquering physical territory for God. We're not annexing different nations and so forth and so on. It's a spiritual battle that we fight. For instance, if you read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 7, it talks about the armor of God. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. And your, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the, uh, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and chapter 4, verse 7, Tim, uh, Paul exhorts Timothy, he says, Endure hardness like a good soldier. And he was not talking about enlisting in the armed forces. I'll tell you what, I've baptized folk that were in the armed forces. And... Some of the work we do as pastors is, is very challenging, <laughs> almost as challenging as what the others do. And so this is not a, this is not a time for, uh, for those of us to get soft. This is, this is a time for us to have courage and to stand. Instead of conquering and dispossessing nations, the church is to conquer by the preaching of the gospel. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, the church is pictured uh, as, as a rider riding on a white horse. And it says that horse went forth conquering and to conquer. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, that the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Not having the sophisticated equipment that we had. Oh, friends, that's the kind of love we need, isn't it? That's the kind of power that we need. Jesus said, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to remember or to uh, observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end. Now, the mission given to literal Israel was clear Go conquer these nations. But they were not left free to devise any means in order to accomplish the objective. That is really the point here. So God says, look, I've given you all this land, but no chariots, no horses. You are to rely upon me and upon the strength that I can give. And there are two major reasons for why God did not want them to use chariots and horses. The first is that they would trust more in what they can do and less in what God can do. And they would ultimately come to the point where they are going to be taking on some real major, major opposition. 
And if you're training yourself to have confidence in yourself, pretty soon, you know, there's already somebody tougher than you. I mean, you know, you can be pretty bad, but there's always somebody that's badder than you. And so you're going to get to the point then, boy, you're going to get scared. But if you learn to trust in God, then that's all you need to worry about. And He can wield the sword. So, again, the first, the first reason is that, no, they would begin to trust in themselves more than to God. The second reason is very interesting. Uh, look, look, to me, look with me, I should say, in 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to look at verse 11. Just a little bit of the context here, because the book of the law had been discovered. And once that book of the law was discovered, the young king then got together all the elders and everybody, and he made an appeal in 2 Kings 23, verse 3. He made a covenant with them that they would keep all of God's commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people stood to the covenant. I know I've been providing a lot of information here, but we need to make a decision. If the Holy Spirit has been convicting us in this area, then we, need, we really need to make a decision. This can't be just information-based. This has got to be a transforming experience. Amen. So I would encourage you and challenge you to do that, to make it a transforming experience. You know, I read a quote not too long ago that said that the pastor wanted to bring revival into the church by introducing a different form of, uh, uh, of music and worship. Well, that's not what brought revival into Josiah's Reformation. It was the rediscovery of the book of the law. And when they rediscovered that, I tell you what, it's the Word of God that has power to transform and to change a person's life. And I tell you, if this church wasn't preaching the three angels' messages, I would have probably just walked in and walked out. If they did all this, you know, fancy mumbo-jumbo praise stuff and all that, I said, man, you know, I'm not here for that. I was taking all kinds of philosophy classes. I was a person that was searching for meaning. I wanted something rock solid. And I wasn't going to settle for, oh, that's just because the church said so, or this is the way we do things. Absolutely not. Because I, I had a family to go back to and friends to go back to and explain why I was doing the way I, what I was doing. And an emotional experience at an altar call wouldn't justify it for me. Not at all. Needed something rock solid. It's the Word of God that brings revival. It's the Word of God that brings reformation. And so it brought a revival when the Word was read. And notice what happened in verse 11. This is the second reason for why God did not want them to use chariots and horses. Verse 11, it says... And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun. Now some versions say, had dedicated to the sun. At the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathanmelech, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs. And he burned the chariots of the sun, or in some versions, that were dedicated to the sun, with fire. So God didn't want them to use the chariots and the horses, because they were dedicated to the sun. And whatever is dedicated to the sun will end up ultimately worshiping the sun. And the chariots and the horses could not be, quote, Christianized and adopted into Israel's military without seriously compromising the message and the mission of God's people. So two reasons. We depend on us, less on God, 
and these things have been dedicated to the Son. Well, since we're no longer in a physical war, what could these chariots and horses represent today? Again, these were instruments of warfare back then, primarily used by God's enemies in order to gain new territory. Now, they represent, the spiritual chariots and horses represent methods, which are not sanctioned by God's word, used primarily by Babylon in order to attract members to her churches. You ever heard of the type-anti-type principle? That's basically what I'm working with here. You have literal, and then you have spiritual. You have literal horses. What were they used for? Literal chariots. And now, we have a, missions, uh, a mission and a message as well. So, these represent methods primarily used by God's enemies to enlarge their churches. And so, some would advocate using, in order to conquer territory, and especially the youth... You know, clowns, magic, <coughs> drums, music of a theatrical nature, praise and worship teams that are really playing rock music and calling it praise and worship. Now, I can only tell you what my reaction would have been at the time. If I saw that, I would have said, well, I can get that down at the bar, and plus they know how to do it a lot better than you guys. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean... If that's really what you're trying to get me with, it's not going to work, you know, because I'll just go to Georgia's Spaghetti Factory where they really know how to play it. And I'll listen to them play it there. When you come to church, you come because you're hungering and thirsting for something. You want the truth. And that's what I was there for. I wanted the truth. And I was 22 years old when I came in. So it was, it was a really fabulous, fabulous experience. Now, since when did Jesus ever use these methods? Do you know that Jesus lived in a Greco-Roman culture? Now, I'm Greek, and I know something a little bit about Greek culture. When I was going to church, and I didn't go to church that often. It was Christmas, Easter, weddings, funerals, so forth and so on. And uh, the church was always attached to a big cultural center, so we would, you know, we would drink and, and dance and all that at the, at the cultural center. And so Greeks are a people of art, they're a people of literature, they're a people of dance. That all existed in Jesus' day. That was all available to him. But he didn't use any of that. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says he invited 12 to come to him. And he called them, uh, and, he gave, and, and, and there were two things that he wanted. He called them that they might be with him, number one, and that he might send them forth to preach. Because if we're not with him, then we don't really have anything to say. Amen? Amen. That was the method that he used. It was the foolishness of preaching. And he had all of that at his command. In other words, he had the Greco-Roman art and culture that he could have used, but he didn't do that. Because he knew that, that it wouldn't really reach the heart. It would not transform and convict the soul. Amen. An amazing development has happened in some Sabbath-keeping churches. Just what has happened to some of the congregations who have adopted these church growth methods, borrowed from places like Willow Creek and Saddleback and other churches, it's, it's incredible, friends, what has happened. Uh, at its height, and I read this whole dissertation uh, on the Colton Celebration Church, it had more than a thousand members, and people were flocking to that. 
However, with the passing of time, some interesting developments took place. Now, I'm not, I'm not impugning anybody's motives. I'm just trying to educate us to think theologically here for a minute. Its leading pastor developed an independent spirit at the time. This led to internal problems in the congregation. This, coupled with an unwillingness to take counsel from the conference leadership, led him to leaving the ministry. Today, he's joined forces with those who are most bitterly attacking the Adventist church and its fundamental doctrines. Buying into the same spirit, one of his leading elders left the church and started his own Sunday-keeping church. The church went from one sadness to another. The two new pastors that replaced the founding pastor were dismissed over doctrinal issues. As a result of all this turmoil, the church went through several splits, decline in attendance, and membership followed. They could no longer keep up the payments on their large new facility. The conference kindly assumed the payments while it was being sold. This series of sorrows finally led the group that was left to merge with another congregation." from the South Pacific Division. It says, latest reports show that the five new contemporary churches which were, and the author puts planted, in quotes, in the South Pacific Division between 1985 and 1997 have experienced similar disasters and tragedies as those reported of the Celebration Churches in the North American Division on which they were patterned. Many members of these churches were lost, and sometimes their pastors with them. Only one of the five is still in the sisterhood of Seventh-day Adventist churches when I had done that research. There's been a disastrous loss instead of a gain. In Judges chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord said, Their gods shall be a snare unto you. And this is indeed what has happened. And as you look at the South Pacific Division and things that have gone on in this division, it demonstrates to me beyond a shadow of the doubt that changing the forms of worship does not bring souls into the church. People are still dissatisfied. And you have to go from one form of entertainment to another just to be able to keep them. And you know what? We're not trained that way, and we can't compete with Hollywood. No, no way. Time and experience have shown that it does, does not work. However, this is something interesting. Time Magazine, October 31, 2006. This has been going on in the evangelical world. Notice what Time Magazine said. It said, Youth ministers have been on a long and frustrating quest of their own over the past two decades or so. Believing that a message wrapped in pop culture packaging was the way to attract teens to their flocks, pastors watered down the religious content and boosted the entertainment. You know, because they know entertainment when they see it. I mean, you can call it religion, but they look at it and say, no, we know what that is because we know what we do. But in recent years, churches have begun offering their young people a style of religious instruction grounded in Bible study and teachings about the doctrines of their denomination. Their conversion, talking about the youth pastors, has been sparked by the recognition that sugar-coated Christianity, popular in the 1980s and early 1990s, has caused growing numbers of kids to turn away, not just from attending youth fellowship activities, but also from practicing their faith at all. Time Magazine, October 31st, 2006. And I'm not sure whether I have it in my notes here. But uh, uh, Willow Creek up in, uh, up in Chicago has basically um, issued a statement saying, you know what, what we've been doing hasn't really worked. What we instituted 20 years ago about attracting seekers to the church, has, uh, they have not progressed. They're still the same heathen worshiping people that they were when they walked in 20 years later. So yeah, they attracted the seekers, but they stayed there. Because what you win them with is what you win them to. It's, it was an amazing statement that they made. 
several years ago, two of our churches started using their own chariots and horses. One in Colorado, inspired by the methods of Willow Creek, was featured in one of our leading denominational papers. However, in the midst of the success and attention, the pastor and the church broke away from the conference. They wanted the freedom to do their own thing. Well, then the money. You know, they wanted to keep the tithe to fund their mega church dream. And as I stated earlier, we could build in some of our big city churches where there's wealthy people, we could make the Crystal Cathedral, cathedral look like a shack if we wanted to. I mean, but what would possess an Adventist minister to want to keep the tithe in his local church? Isn't that the system that God gave us so that we could preach the gospel to the entire world? Amen. Why would we want to hoard that? Is that really glorifying God? No. no. It's a glorification of self. That's all it is. That's why God has given us that wonderful system. They said they were going to keep the Sabbath. Well, they'd just be a little bit distant from us. Another church near Washington, D.C. did something very similar. These were going to teach us how being relevant would help us to grow. As if the three angels' messages are not relevant. Oh, I can't believe that. That just... They are the most... They, the three angels' messages counteract every ism that you could think of. Amen. They're the antidote to all of them. And we really got to, like the young lady preached about, we really got to be in the Word and discover why we're Adventists. I tell you, there is not a church like this church. Amen. Amen. Proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. So they were going to teach us how we could be relevant. Well, guess what the, these would-be Adventist churches discovered? You couldn't get a community crowd on Sabbath, so they opted for relevancy. Because that was the principle that they were working from all along. And just like a seed, all it needed to do was be developed. And there's Mission Catalyst Network. Their mission, to do whatever it takes to equip local churches to accomplish the Great Commission. And they mean whatever it takes. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The ends justify the means. But friends, the facts are that no matter how many times it's been tried, there's really not a successful copycat of any one of these churches within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They're, they're really theologically incompatible. Something interesting happens uh, when these things are downloaded into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. According to Roman Catholic uh, 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 structure, it does not matter when Vatican II came in, in the 1960s. It blew the whole liturgical thing wide open. For 400 years, the Roman Catholic Church had been saying the liturgy in Latin. Then in 1967, all of a sudden, now in every language. And it opened up the floodgates. And they realized they needed to do something. Their theological structure allows them to change whatever worship forms they want without affecting it. But when it's downloaded into Adventism, <coughs> it shuts us down. It is not compatible with our theology. And when it is adopted, it works like a virus to destroy us. The curse causeless shall not come. So chariots and horses are dedicated to sun worship. And some trust in chariots and some in horses. But I, leave by, but I believe those of us that are here... Today, we want to remember the name of the Lord our God Amen. and trust in His methods and in His ways. What was often the downfall when it came to worship renewal? And by the way, uh, when did we start? Did we start at 3.30? 3.45. Okay, good. 
What was often the downfall of, of, of uh, um, Israel when it came to worship renewal? And you need to pray for us as preachers. In Exodus 32, they worked through Aaron, right? They worked through somebody that wasn't quite like Moses. And they were able to work through him because Aaron wanted to be popular with the people. And so he knew it was wrong. And he really didn't put up a good enough struggle with the people. And they overtook him. And so, friends, we need to have, you need to pray for us. That we'll be willing to stand, take the unpopular approach, and believe that something like GYC can really take off and be just the beginning. It was weak leadership. Because I'll tell you, if, if preachers got one weak spot among others, it's that we want to be liked. And who doesn't want to be liked? And, and, and you get tired of going against the grain and stepping on people's toes. You get tired of that. So keep us in prayer. Amen. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 to 28, which we just discussed, they took counsel, but it wasn't with the law of Moses. When Jeroboam set up those two worship centers, the one in Dan and the other in Bethel, they took counsel, but they didn't study the law of Moses on the subject. They gave them a worship based on their needs. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. So we'll do it your way. It was ultimately a worship of self. And friends, and where is all this worship renewal heading? Well, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 11, whatever is dedicated to the Son will lead to its worship. If we adopt the philosophy that anything and everything will do, then we'll be swept away. In the early church... I said that if we're confused about the way, we'll be confused about the day. Read the early chapters of the great controversy. The Sabbath didn't change overnight. It was when they started tampering with the second commandment, the commandment not to worship idols and images. That paved the way for tampering with the fourth commandment. It led directly to that. Because the fourth commandment is in direct opposition to that second one. It says there's a difference between God and the creation. The second one confuses God with the creation. And so once you go along that track, the Sabbath is no longer relevant. It's no longer one of the systems or foundations upon which worship should be built. It's gone. It's discarded. People are doing something a little different today. Have you ever looked at the difference between the first two commandments? The first one says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one says, Thou shalt not, uh, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above the earth, beneath the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. What's the difference between the two? The first commandment makes a prohibition against false gods. No Baal, no Ashtoreth, etc., the second commandment prohibits us from worshiping the true God with false forms. Okay? The first commandment says, no false gods, no Baal, no Ashtoreth. The second commandment says, it places a limit on our creativity. It says, there is a way and there is not a way. The second commandment says, we cannot worship the true God with false forms. I mean, I'm from Michigan, and so if I'm, if I'm going to drive to California, I can't hop on 80 East. I know. 
And if the police officer stops me and says, where are you going? I'm going to California. <laughs> well, you're heading in the wrong direction. You're going east. You should be going west. Well, that's all right. I'll make it there anyway, officer. <laughs> Unfortunately, we begin to reason like that when it comes to spiritual matters. You know, when it comes to how to worship God, hey, it's all about what I think and feel. But yet, I was having this conversation with a guy on the plane. And he found out, you know, he found out what I was doing. And so he, he expressed the usual adage that, you know, we're all different people arriving at the same place, going in different directions. And I said, you know, that's pretty interesting because have you ever seen that philosophy applied in medicine? Or, or law? Or in his field, computer programming? Have you ever tried that in your field? Well, what makes us think that it works the same way in spiritual things? So, um, when we tamper with the second commandment, the fourth commandment is about to go. Confusion about the way is going to lead to confusion about the day. Now, what's happening is that we're all using our creativity. When we allow our creativity to run rampant without controls, we are essentially violating the second commandment. Okay? That's what we're doing. And so, when creativity is in, theology goes out. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be creative. But if we don't have a philosophical base, there are no parameters for our creativity. It runs wild. And it will lead us in the wrong direction. There's an amazing statement in Second Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 36, to 39 on the Holy Flesh Movement, if you've ever heard about it, in the Indiana camp meetings around 1901. This is what the servant of the Lord said. She said, The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. She says, No encouragement should be given to this kind of worship. Those things which have been in the past, it, she didn't say might be, but will be in the future. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. Now, our church is called the Seventh-day Adventist church because we believe that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord our God and we believe that Jesus is coming again. Now if we want to preach and continue to preach the nearness of the Lord's return this statement says that just before the close of probation which has got to be pretty close to the Lord's return this is what is going to happen. So is this an issue that we could simply then sweep under the rug and pretend that it's going to go away? No. We'll do it to our detriment and to the detriment of many. So this is something that we must give attention to. I'll just share with you a little bit of uh, my, own, my own testimony at this time as I, as I make an appeal for today. Uh, but as I mentioned before, those of you that were not here, I was uh, raised uh, in Toronto, Canada, with loving family, great family. Um, you have to pardon me.
And uh, we would go to church just a few times a year. You know, that's all. But um, if there's one thing I really wanted to do, and that is, that uh, was to play them drums. <laughs> I would always go to those Greek dances, and uh, the drummer was right there, and phew, I would study that thing. And when I got to high school, I think, well, hey, I bought my own drum set. I worked for it. I took all the lessons and went to York University, uh, where I studied uh, jazz performance. I studied under the two of the best jazz uh, drummers in Canada at the time. And I ultimately made it to the uh, third work or the top workshop. And so uh, at first when I got in, I was in workshop number eight because jazz was a little new for me. I uh, had moved from rock, which was beginning to be a little unsatisfying. I moved from rock to blues. When I saw jazz played, I thought, wow, man, these guys are good. And there's no question about it. They are good. They are really good musicians. And so uh, hats off to them aesthetically. No question about it. And so I got into the jazz program. I really, I really practiced hard, played hard, and finally got, to the, finally got to the top shop. Well, it was there that I met my wife. And so we were in some music classes together, and uh, she would then uh, begin to talk to me about spiritual things. I'm about 21 years old right now. And so uh, I said, well, that might be good for people that are ready to die, but, <laughs> but not me. <laughs> you know, I, kind of plan on doing this for a little while. So uh, she began to think, uh-oh, <laughs> what am I getting myself into? She was raised in the Philippines. She was raised by her grandmother. And uh, in that culture, you know, grandma had to sit her down and say, you know what? You're going to marry a pastor. God has given you these gifts, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to marry a pastor. And you know what, it, you know what it's like when people tell you what you're going to do in that area. You know, you, you run, but, but in that culture, you don't, you don't disagree with grandma. You just go ahead and quietly do what you're going to do. And so <laughs> that's exactly what she began to do. <laughs> and so um, she didn't even want to date any Christian guys because, you know, that thing was lurking in the background. You're going to marry a pastor. Christian? No, oh, too close. We can't go there. <laughs> so when she saw me, I had a lot more hair. <laughs> lot of it, right down to the shoulders there, wearing the chains and all that. And she looked, she looked at me and she said, that brother's safe. <laughs> that brother is safe. But as it says in uh, the story with, uh, uh, with Samuel, uh, you know, only the Lord can read the heart. She couldn't. <laughs> I didn't even know what I was all about. But uh, we started to grow a little closer and uh, she started to share a little bit more with me. She gave me a Bible, December of 89, and I began to read that. It was like a living Bible. So I went ahead and read the New Testament. And of course, you know, uh, you read Daniel and Revelation, and uh, you're like, wow, well, I wonder what this is talking about. And as I said, I was studying philosophy. I was studying about my grandparents, Plato and Aristotle, and all these guys trying to make sense of what's going on in the world and all that kind of stuff, you know, because it's kind of cool to be intellectual when you're a drummer. You know, so you got to because everybody thinks, you know, well, a drummer, he's someone that hangs out with musicians. He's not really a musician. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, I had to take something that could convince people that, I, you know, I, I could do something other than just beat some drums. But really, I was searching for something. I didn't really know it. And if you were to tell me that the Bible was it, I wouldn't believe you because, I mean, edu my education was influenced by evolutionism and science and all that. And I really thought it was a book written by men. And, and that was it. And so she got to praying, unbeknownst to me, of course. 
And so um, I was intrigued. She invited me to church. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go. But don't leave my side. Now, you got to understand what it looks like from a worldly person's point of view who's not, going, who's not used to going to church. So don't leave my side because somebody might come up to me and ask me when the last time I sinned was. And, you know, I really don't want to get into all that. I just want to hear what the man has to say. I'm in there and I'm out of there. So I began to make the motions and go to church. And uh, she gave me the great controversy afterwards. She was reading... Cosmic Conflict. Have you ever seen the old Cosmic Conflict? It looks like a sci-fi book. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I know her well enough. It's not like her to read sci-fi. I said, what is that book that you're reading? You know, you notice you have it around a lot. And uh, she said, well, um, why don't you read these chapters? It's based on some of the things you had questions about. I said, okay, I'll go ahead and read them. So, United States and Prophecy, Snares of Satan, so forth and so on. I read them. I was in my room with a little light in my room, just wide enough to see the pages. My sister would come in. What are you doing? I'm reading a book. A couple of days later, this is over like a Christmas or an Easter break. What, what, what are you doing? Because it wasn't like me to read a book like that. This was a 600-page book. I'm a drummer. <laughs> so she said, what are you doing? I said, you know, sis, I really cannot tell you now. I'd been almost halfway through the book, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. At first, I'd get the Bible out and say, okay, let's check these scriptures out, you know, see who this person is. Wow. Well, after about 50 or 100 pages, I said, man, they've got my confidence. <laughs> I began to trust the book. I read the whole book in, in about two weeks. I was an Adventist. <laughs> There's no question about it. I was an Adventist. But she was thinking, you know, and, I, and then the call was made to be baptized. Of course, I go, I go forward. And so she had some uh, folk in her side of the family who's, uh, who the, uh, the ladies married um, uh, fellows that were not Seventh-day Adventists. And they decided to be baptized just to get the ladies, you know. And so that was lurking in her mind. Why is this brother doing this? But, you know, I mean, I had to, to walk out of a Greek Orthodox uh, uh, family uh, uh, is, is not an easy thing. <laughs> I've met two Greek brothers that are here. There's probably only, I would guess there was probably only five of us, and maybe not even five of us at this whole convention. When I, when I first became an Adventist, I was like Elijah. Lord, I know I got to be the only one. <laughs> There's no other way. I've got to be the only one. And so I, I can remember, you know, when I first decided not to do any more drinking, because uh, Dad and I would drink a little bit uh, just uh, socially at, at a meal. And so, you going to have a beer? No, I'm not having a beer. You going to have some wine? No, I'm not having some wine. Why aren't you doing that? I said, oh, oh, here it comes. <laughs> so I began to explain to him, and that was it. I mean, they are manipulating you. They are brainwashing you. You watch when you get to the top. You'll see how the whole thing operates. I mean, you know, they were like, they got me to talk to two Greek Orthodox priests, trying to convince me to change my ways, but it was very difficult once you read the great controversy. And once you begin to mark your Bible, that's what the evangelist told me how to do. I, I chain referenced every single subject. Amen. And so, I mean, I was ready. I, whatever he asked, oh, you know, let's, let's, let's grapple with the word, you know. And so that's what it was like. But uh, I tell you what, uh, when I left home, I mean, you can ask my wife, they, they cried like it was my funeral when I was about to go from Toronto to Andrews University. 
They just wept like I was, like I, they had lost their son, and he was not coming back. It was, it was really something. My dad told me, don't you ever talk to your brother and sister about this. Well, you know, you can't help yourself when you get the truth. So, My sister now is married to an Adventist pastor. <laughs> so we're still working on my brother. But, um, and I have a cousin as well. But they really, they really wept for me like I was, uh, like I was gone. I mean, I was, I, I was out of there. And so uh, my wife's journey is a, wife, uh, is a journey of faith as well because uh, she, you know, the Lord really blessed her with a lot of musical ability. Um, she's able just to do a lot of things. I remember this uh, one program on 3ABN. We were in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, they had a little debriefing in the back, but they didn't invite my wife back there. She didn't, had no idea she was going to play. And so all of a sudden, John Lomacain comes up, and you know how the three ABN music rolls, and you're, you know, live in front of a billion people. And all of a sudden, John Lomacain's eyes go like this to my wife. She, he goes, and she's like, huh? All of a sudden, I'd never seen her move so quick. She moved, and she slid right on that piano. She had no idea what they were going to play. And he said, and he said, this is the hymn. Bang. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, as a matter of fact, when she left York University, uh, some of the professors said, um, never heard of Andrews University before. This person could probably go to Juilliard. Uh, so, uh, but she knew that if she stayed in that kind of an environment, it, she would lose her Christianity. She would lose that experience. And so she adopted to go um, to Andrews University. She didn't know I was coming, had no idea. And so uh, I said, well, I'll see you there. <laughs> I'm going. So, uh, so anyway, about a year or so after that, we were married. And we have little Sophia, and I have a son uh, named Dino as well. And I was so hoping, you know, when I walked out on the drums finally, and I said, okay, I'm, Lord, I'm done with this. Uh, I was so hoping that he could give me another musical talent, you know, like, like the gift of tongues. All of a sudden, just boom, zap. And I'd be able to sit down on the piano or the guitar or something like that and just have music come out. I mean, I do miss the, the idea of playing in an ensemble. And if you've ever played in an ensemble that way, there's a certain communication and that happens when you do that. It's really an enjoyable experience. I really wanted that, but I said, nah, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's no way. Um, I can remember the first time I made a stand for the Sabbath. I said, you know, fellas, I can't play this Friday night. Well, why not? It's the Sabbath. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Well, from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, you, uh, you need to rest. You keep the Sabbath. What about next Friday night? Well, I'll be, keep <laughs> I'll be keeping the Sabbath then, too. That was the death sentence <laughs> on my musical career. So, you know, when I finally laid that aside, I said, oh, wow, Lord, it'd be nice to sing or nice to do something like that. But 17 years of marriage and uh, 13 years with my kids have convinced them and me that it's not possible for me to sing. So, so I simply leave that to uh, my wife and Sophia and Dino. And I just want to challenge you with the fact that the Lord will not withhold any good thing from you. And if he ever asks for something, he will give you back a hundredfold. A hundredfold. 
And so if you're being challenged in this area, my advice and my counsel to you is to step out and obey God and covet the best gifts. I mean, I, you know, I was a drum. I sat behind the drums. I didn't like talking to people. I couldn't talk to people. There was just no way. But whatever he asks us to give up, he will replace with something else. And just, you know, it's just a reward for me just to hear Sophia sing. I just, well, thank you, Lord. That was all right. You know, out of my loins. I know I'm just a little, <laughs> little fatherly pride. I'm sorry. Can't help myself. So pray for her and for me. I mean, that's, a, you know, the, the devil would obviously want to derail that. And so keep us in prayer. But I just want to challenge you in this area that the Lord will supply all of your needs. Amen. Whatever you thought you needed from this music, <coughs> He will supply it through the Word, through other avenues. And so as I pray just now, I want to pray for you. And I want to ask that you just surrender yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this privilege and opportunity. And I just ask that you would be with every young person that is here and those of us that are not so young, that are struggling. Help us to know that you can give us the mind of Christ. Help us to know that you can change appetites and, and passions and tastes and that you can educate us. Lord, you've promised that you would not withhold any good thing from those who walk upright with you. And I pray that that promise will be fulfilled in the life of every person that is listening today, whether they're here or whether they're listening, perhaps in the future through, uh, through multimedia. I just ask that you would fulfill that promise. Let us delight ourselves in the Lord, for He will give us the <laughs> desires of our hearts. So, Father, please take away the love for this world and put in our hearts a love for Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.